right. We have been in a uh, series of messages recently. We're uh, sort of moving our way through the first several chapters of the book of Romans. And we saw in our uh, first installment in this series, uh, Paul talked about the righteousness of God as it is expressed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is that God's righteousness is revealed to us in its fullness through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. That he gave his life in love for the purpose of redeeming others. And we see the fullness of God's righteousness there. And then last week, Paul sort of flipped the coin over and we looked at sort of the fullness of the ugliness of humanity. Uh, A lot of fun, I think, to talk about, right? But... um, Paul sort of went into uh, a very thorough articulation at these, in the second half of chapter 1 of what life looks like at its worst and where we uh, wind up apart from God. And so um, we come today to the remainder of chapter 2 And this is sort of a a glimpse as to, uh, or at, our actions, particularly our religious actions, those things which we do in relationship to God, and what those things say about who we are and how we relate to him. And so Paul uh, takes up this question of the human heart, it's orientation to God and what faith looks like or does not look like when it's lived out, when it's put into practice. And so you'll hear some some funny odd things as we read this passage together in a minute. Um, He'll talk about Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Keep in mind, Paul has never met the church to whom he is writing in this passage. He is hoping to get there and hoping to see them and hoping to uh, spend some time with them, but he's never met these people. And so he, he presumes that there are a few Jews uh, in their group and many non-Jews or Gentiles in their group. So that's one thing you'll need to pay attention to. And then you'll also hear him talk about the law and circumcision. And circumcision is sort of what represents the covenant of God with his people in the Jewish mind. And so Paul makes these sort of, they, 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 will, they will feel rather sudden and random when he just throws the word circumcision in there. Um, but he's, it's a very loaded word in the context into which Paul is writing. And it's a word that, that conveys the fullness of God's relationship with his people through the covenant of grace. And so the, that is, Circumcision was the sort of ultimate sign and seal of that covenant. And so that's what Paul is referring to when he uses that word. So here we go. I'm going to start in verse 6 of Romans chapter 2. And I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 29. So Romans 2, 6 through 29. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the bearers, I'm sorry, not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, so that on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Many of you have heard this story or parts of it before, but I'm reminded of a summer camp that I was attending when I was in high school. And the counselor in our cabin was a, uh, he was in ministry full time. And the camp was part of an organization called Young Life. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. 
but I was a I was a cocky football player, you know, full of myself. I know that's hard to believe because I'm such a humble man now. I love to tell people how humble I am. Um, and one of the counselors, his name was Dave, we're getting out of our bunks one morning, and he just looks right at me and he goes, Masterson. I said, yeah. He said, how come you're not a Christian? I don't know, Dave, I mean, um, you know, I kind of know some Christians and they're all really good and I'm not really all that good, but kind of what I was thinking was maybe, um, you know, I'll clean up my act a little bit and I'll be a little bit better person and then I'll become a Christian. And he didn't say anything, but he gave me this look like, I have never heard a worse answer to that question in my life. You know, this look that just said, you couldn't possibly have less of a clue about that of which you are speaking. And so he just kind of let it go and didn't really push or prod or pry. Um, But I remember as that morning grew into the afternoon, thinking about that question all day. He did not ask me, Masterson, are you a Christian? He didn't ask me that question. Had he asked me that question, I probably would have been able to say, well, you know, I went to church every Sunday, uh, up until about seventh grade, I went through the confirmation class. They confirmed that I'm a Christian, and uh, I was able to take communion, which is like one of the signs of being a Christian. And, uh, of course, I haven't been back since, really, but, um, you know, I could have said, yeah, I got the, I got the sheet of paper, you know, from the church with my name on it, and I'm good right? But he didn't ask me that. He didn't ask me, are you a Christian? He just looked me right in the eye and he said, why aren't you a Christian? And all I could come up with was that lame response that had only to do with my actions. And The Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people who are probably very confused because Christianity wasn't even called Christianity at this point in history. Um, If it was called anything, it was called the way. That's how people referred to Christianity, the way, referring to Jesus' words, I am the way and the truth and the life. Anyone who comes to me shall live or have eternal life. That's Tom's paraphrase. Very poorly done. Um, So, Christians weren't called Christians, and there were these gatherings of people 
most of the leaders in these gatherings were Jews who had come to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. But there wasn't a real differentiation between Judaism and Christianity at this point in history. And so some of the Jews who were now uh, pastoring these churches were telling people what they had been told their whole lives. Well, to be in good standing with God, you need to be circumcised if you're a man, and you need to be uh, keeping the dietary laws and the dress customs and the other uh, obligations of the law to be in good standing with God. And so Paul is writing to this young church in Rome to try to clear up some of their confusion. And part of that confusion is, I would say, natural to all of us, that we are prone to think that this whole God thing is about our actions, our behavior, how well we comply with the will of God. And so Paul turns very quickly in his letter to this church in Rome to this idea of the tension between our actions and our hearts. And he essentially is saying, this is, this is the... the abbreviated version of what Paul is saying in this part of the, of the chapter, but it's about your heart. That's what God is after. Not your compliance with the rules, but with the stirring of your heart. And so let's turn to this chapter and work through uh, these verses and see if we can better understand what Paul is up to. I would say that the the first thing that Paul is saying in verses 6 through 16 is simply put this way. Pay attention to your actions. Pay attention to your actions. They matter. What we do matters in this life. The way we treat other people, the way we relate to God, the way we um, live makes a difference. And so Paul says, by paying attention to your actions, you ought to be able to discern one of two things. First, you ought to, by paying attention to your actions, you ought to be able to uh, reveal where you stand with God. The way you live should tell you something about your relationship with God. Um, And Paul is very, very clear about this something as as to where we stand. And and the question comes down to this. Are you on the right path or are you on the wrong path? And your actions should tell you something about where you stand with God, about what path you are on. And you hear Paul talk about this in verses 6 through 11, that opening paragraph of this section that we're studying today. What we do, how we live, reveals where we stand with God. How we are doing, if you will. Are we on the right path or the wrong path? If we look to our actions in life, the answers to those questions will be found there. Our actions reveal where we stand with God and they reveal our hearts. 
our actions reveal our hearts. Take you to verse 12 real quick. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And you hear in other verses in this passage, this whole idea of people striving according to God's law to put themselves into good standing with God. Are you striving for acceptance is the question Paul is asking. Are you striving for acceptance with God, with other people, with your peers, with your superiors, with your spouse or your kids or your parents? Are you striving for acceptance from others? Because if you are, there's no rest there. You will not find rest for your soul in the, in the game of striving for acceptance. And Paul talks about those who are in this game, if you will, of striving for acceptance from God and from others through keeping the law or not keeping the law. And he makes this very interesting point here, which would have been extremely difficult for the Jewish listeners in the crowd. That if someone who's never heard the law, who's not Jewish, doesn't look Jewish, act Jewish, think Jewish, or in any way, shape, or form relate to Judaism, if that person, from their heart, acts in ways that are consistent with the law and love of God, that's what God's looking for. That puts them in a good place in relationship to God. Um, and the Jewish person would have, would have just been recoiling at this point in the passage as this was read to this congregation going, no, 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 don't tell people that. We'll have anarchy out here. You know, we'll have all kinds of crazy things going on. Um, what people need to know is that they need to be in compliance with the law of God. The law is important, and we need to follow it. And Paul says it's not about the letter of the law. It's about the heart. And the, what God is after is, is getting, drilling down to the core of who we are and then causing us to live from that place of strength in ways that are consistent with who God is and what he wants for our lives. So, are you struggling for acceptance or are you wrestling with your conscience? Did you notice this in, I think it's verse 15? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. 
what Paul is saying is that when we are engaged with God at the level of our heart, there's a wrestling. There's a, rela- a wrestling between my will and God's will. There's a wrestling between good and evil. There's a wrestling between um, what I might want to do and what I know God wants me to do. And Paul says that is the place, that place of wrestling and, and struggle and engagement of our faith, that is the place out of which God wants us to live. This is the person who is commended in this passage. Not the person who obeys all the rules and keeps all the law and is properly dressed and otherwise in compliance with the law. But the person who is engaged at the level of their heart, who is struggling through the fight of faith to live in the way that is pleasing to God. Our actions tell us something about who we are and how we live. They're important. We are to pay attention to our actions. However, Paul comes back around and says we must not rely on our actions for our standing with God. That would take us back into the striving uh, position rather than the, the wrestling in the heart place out of which God wants us to live. So we're to pay attention to our actions, but we're not to rely upon our actions for our standing with God or with others. Because relying on our actions will put us in a position where our actions betray us. Our actions will betray our hearts. Paul reminds us um, verses 17 through 22 that self-reliance yields hypocrisy. If we resolve to stand on our own merit before God, we will inevitably fail. We are not perfect. God is. We've talked about this earlier in this series. Um, And so we're in this position where relying on our own works, our own actions, our own efforts will get us into um, a box canyon, if you will, out of which there is no escape. That we are relying on what we can do to better ourselves, to become better, to be in good standing with God, rather than relying on the grace of God for salvation. So self-reliance, Paul tells us, yields hypocrisy. Those who rely upon their ability to fulfill the law will never perfectly fulfill it. And then what is the fruit of our hypocrisy? Paul says that self-reliance will dishonor God. Um, You saw that little verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's talking to us who 
claim to be in good standing with God based upon our ability to fulfill the law, to remain obedient. And when we put ourselves in that position, two things happen. We become hypocrites and God's name is dishonored. Other people look at hypocrisy in us and say, why would I want to become a Christian if that's the way life is for them? Um, you know, I'm reminded of the famous quote from Gandhi. Um, you know, I've read, I like what I've read about Christ. I'm not so sure I like what I've seen in Christians. And so that was his objection to Christianity. And um, it's many people's objection to Christianity, what they see in us or don't see in us. And so relying on our actions to establish our validity before God or others causes these other dominoes to fall, hypocrisy and the dishonoring of the name of God. We don't rely on our actions because they will betray us and because they cannot save us. This is the whole point of this gospel which Paul refers to, this good news of Jesus Christ, that God has done on our behalf that which we absolutely cannot do for ourselves. I cannot obey well enough to deserve grace. It's, that's some kind of logical conflict. I can't even explain to you how incompatible those two ideas are. So, if our actions cannot save us, what is Paul saying? He's saying that we are to be a people who seek the covenant of the heart, who seek out this place where God engages our lives in our hearts, where, as he talked about earlier, there is this wrestling with right and wrong, this struggle between faith and our flesh. And Paul says, we are to be a people who seek the covenant of the heart. This whole uh, use of the word circumcision that Paul puts into this passage is just steeped in the symbolism of the covenant, God's way of relating to his people. And from the very beginning, um, the covenant has been about grace. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God for the first time, what did they deserve? What? Death? Okay. Um, what did they get? Grace. They got, there was a consequence. They were expelled from the garden. You can't live in this paradise right now. You've disqualified yourself, so to speak. So there was a natural consequence to their sin. But they weren't um, immediately punished by death, which was what God had said would happen on the day they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that discourse between God 
and the evil one and Eve and Adam, he says to Eve that I will put enmity between you. Or is he, he's talking to the serpent there, right? So I will put enmity between you and the woman and you will, and, the, and the seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman, um, which is a really strange way to ra- refer to this, but I'll, I'll leave that for another time. Um, and God says to the serpent, you will strike his heel, that is the seed of the woman, but he will crush your head. And so there's this, from the very, very beginning of the introduction of sin into the equation of God and man, there is this infusion of grace, this promise that a, a day of reckoning will come, that good will prevail over evil, that there will be one who will take upon himself the punishment which we deserved for our actions. And so there's this displacement of death by grace and life and love from the very beginning. And Paul alludes to that here. And he says that's where God wants us, is in this place where our hearts are rendered open and the struggle, the wrestling uh, between good and evil is free to, to be lived out in real time. We're to seek the covenant of the heart and we're to seek to live by the power of the Spirit. We are all prone to try to get through this on our own, to try to bear up, bear down and push through. Um, and God says, are you crazy? Really, are you crazy? And, and this is one of the things I, I want for you today, and as you go to elder care groups, I, I want you to be in life together with other people, to share with them what's going on in your world, what's, what's your what are these wrestlings in your heart? Where do you need prayer and support and care from God's people? Because we're not to go this alone. God's covenant is always one that includes us in a group of people where we can find love and support and care. And so Paul reminds us in this closing segment that a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter his praise is not from man but from God and do you hear the difference between that person who is striving for acceptance from God and others and the person whose heart is rendered to Christ and whose life, consequently, is pleasing in the eyes of God. And there, in that surrendered place, our hypocrisy is deflated. Other people's accusations against us are powerless because we're not saying that we have it all together. We're saying that we are wholly and completely dependent upon the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we marvel at how well you know us, 
at how deeply you understand the human heart and how deeply you desire to live there in the midst of that struggle to show us your unfailing love, your patience, your forgiveness, your grace. Where your covenant is renewed and we are reminded that we belong to you, that we are part of your family and that you love us and will sustain us not only throughout the struggle of this life, but into the peace of eternity. We thank you for that gift that you have made possible for us through Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would lead us to live out of his strength, his grace, the power of your Holy Spirit. In your son's name we pray. Amen.